0: Good morning. morning. We have three things to talk about before we start. First, how about Brad? Um, I just want to tell y'all if I got shot in the leg on Tuesday and we have Dennis and Wayne out of town uh, as as, as they are today, then we have two options for the sermon today. Number one, we have a singing service. (laughs) And number two, we have a hospital bed, and I get wheeled up here, and y'all might me up. That is insane. I don't know how he's, how he's leading to singing today, but it's awesome. Second thing, and it pains me to do this. Not the first part, the second part. So the first part, thank you to Joanna Moore for all of her work yesterday on the Hobo Stew. Now, the second part that pains me is also thanks, Mike. <laughs> oh, man. It, it, it hurts to say something nice about a Tennessee fan. Um, sometimes you have to work to find something but <laughs> I guess he worked hard yesterday so third thing and speaking of sports I'm a Braves fan I just had to make that known because um, right now we're looking really good and so I mean I just I just needed to, to say it before we hopefully win tonight and win the World Series I needed to make it known um, it's not like you know I'm not going to put them on the PowerPoint or anything they're not they're not like Alabama level of importance but <laughs> It's a good time for me right now, <laughs> even though I'm a Spurs fan, so NBA fans, not look too great on that. But other than that, it's a happy time. Now, speaking of happiness, we're going to talk about pretty much the exact opposite today. That is something that is pretty near and dear to, I think, just about all of us, probably everybody in this room. So there are, there are a number of people in this room right now, so none of us is alone, You may have friends in this room, so you're not alone. If you've been baptized into Christ, if you are a part of his body, then you have spiritual family in this room, so you're not alone. But sometimes, somehow, a room full of people can be the loneliest place on earth. Because something about that crowd can shine a light on my insecurities, on my fears, on my weaknesses and it can shine that light in a way that being literally physically alone can't because when i'm in a crowd and i still feel alone then that can communicate to me that in a special way i really am alone now loneliness was a problem before this past year so many of us walk around in this, this maze of our online, of our social media friends and, and influencers, and we're all presenting fake versions of our best selves. And everybody we see online does that, and then we do it in return. And when we get to the end of this maze, we find that we're really all fake versions of our best selves, and we don't really know anybody. For a lot of us, we don't even know ourselves at the end of that maze. So loneliness was already a gigantic problem for just about all of us. But then COVID happened, and 2020 happened, and 2021 happened, and now it's, it's even worse. It amplified what was already a problem. There was a very large survey done last year. A whole lot of people were involved, and they found that 44% of people said that they are lonelier now than they have ever been in their entire lives. That means if you have 11 people on your row, five of you on average are the loneliest now that you have ever been. So, newsflash, that's a really big deal, and it has huge consequences for our lives. I want to read you this this really short quote from a couple of doctors. They say, Virtually every emotional and psychological problem, from addictions to depression, has alienation or emotional isolation at its core or close to it. In other words, almost every problem that we had that comes from inside of our brains is because of loneliness. This is another quote from a psychiatrist, J.H. Vandenberg. He said, If loneliness didn't exist, we could reasonably assume that psychiatric illnesses would not occur either. So if loneliness didn't exist, all of those, the, the mental health issues that are, that are plugging our culture, for the most part, would go away. I was actually listening to a, a presentation this morning for school. As most of you know that I'm, I'm in college and so I was listening to a presentation this morning and this, this man said, he's incredibly acclaimed, he's, he's world famous and he's, he's very uh, reliable. He said that loneliness increases the mortality rate anywhere from three to seven and sometimes ten times in us. So loneliness has very real and very literal, not just emotional, but very much physical ramifications for our lives. So, If we are lonelier now than ever, and and many of us are, then what does that mean for our society? And even more pressing for us this morning, what does that mean for your life and for mine? What does that look like in our lives? What kind of consequences does it have? Because we were made to live in community. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of a God who expresses himself, who is expressed in three persons, right? Father, son, spirit. So from eternity, God has been in community with himself. And then also he created us to be in a relationship with him. God is a communal God and we are made in his image. We are made to be like him. So if God is communal, then we are also communal. We are designed, we are made to live in community. So If we're failing at that, and studies show that Americans have fewer and fewer close friends, every generation it's just going down consistently, then what does that mean for our lives? If God designed us to be the opposite, then why are we the way that we are? Well, I think we can say that when it happens like this, everything kind of just falls apart in our lives. And if you've you've ever been lonely, if you've ever been really lonely, then you know. Everything kind of just falls apart around you. So we're going to read about this morning about a man who was in that situation and pretty much everything in his life fell apart around him. And then we're going to notice what God did to help him get out of that and hopefully to help us do the same. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're not already there from the reading, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we're we're going to spend our time this morning. Also in 1 Kings chapter 19. While you're turning there, I want to read you the, the very first part of James chapter 5 and verse 17. James 5 verse 17. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, Elijah was just like us. At least for me, it's so easy to read, read about these, these characters in the Bible and, and in my mind, translate them as some kind of like super Bible character, right? Who, who never had any problems or pain or suffering. And, and they're there people who did things that we can never match up to. They're people who never struggled like we do. But James says, no. <laughs> It's actually the exact opposite. He was a man just like us. Like Moses has nothing on me. He was a man just like me. Mary has nothing on you. She was a regular woman just like some of you. Elijah has nothing on us. He was just a man like us. So as we read this and we see some of the really cool things that Elijah does in this chapter because there are some, some super, super awesome things that he does here. We can't disconnect that from our experience because we also have some of the same kind of highs in our lives. And then, as we see Elijah go from maybe the highest point in his life to maybe the lowest point in his life, we can take lessons from that and then apply it to our regular lives, from this regular life. So, 1 Kings 18, what we're going to do is this morning we're going to look at the passage itself, and then tonight we're going to make some practical applications from the passage. So, this morning is the passage, tonight is putting it into practice. So, for a little bit of context... When we get to first Kings chapter 18, it's been about a hundred years since david ruled over a united israel So at this point israel is a lot like our country was 150 years ago It's divided between the north and the south. So you have israel in the north. You have judah in the south The, the nation is divided in a land or in a way that god never wanted it to be And at this point ahab is the king of the nation And jezebel is his wife Now, if you know anything about Jezebel, you know that she is literally one of the worst humans who has ever walked on our planet. She is not good news at all. And Ahab is married to her. She's the queen over the entire nation. So what what have they done? What have these really bad people done for the nation? Well, they've led them away from Yahweh, right? The, The true God, the true and living God that we still worship today. And they've led them after Baal, led them after a false god. So th- this king and his queen are responsible for leading this nation away from God. And so Elijah is God's leading prophet at this time. Remember, that's, that's our guy who we're focusing on. He's the leading prophet of God at this time. And Jezebel has actually killed almost all of the other prophets. They're either dead or they're hiding in caves. And Elijah's really the only one who's still out front right now. And, and one minor detail that we can't forget is that at this point, it hasn't rained in the land for almost three years. Can you imagine if it, if it didn't rain in Arkansas for three years I mean, if it doesn't rain for for three months, we're we're all, like, we're getting out of here, right? It's not a good place to be in. It hasn't rained in the land for three years. And it's because of how evil they are. God is punishing them for their wickedness. But he wants to change that. He wants to send rain on the earth. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 18, he says, I'm going to send rain on the earth. But there are some things that has to happen before that can happen. The nation has to turn back to him. That's the main thing. So that's what's coming. But in between... We have this this epic showdown. And so that's what we're going to focus on in our time this morning. We're going to have, uh, y'all know me, we're going to have a bunch of R's. We're going to have it alliterated. Uh, But the points won't really be, uh, we're just kind of dividing up the text. There won't really, uh, we won't take like application from them specifically. But if you want to write them down, maybe in the margin of your Bible, then feel free. So first, we have resolve, resolve. We're going to start kind of in the middle of chapter 18 and go to kind of the middle of chapter 19. So look at verse 17 of 1 Kings chapter 18. When Ahab saw Elijah... Remember, Ahab is the king at this time. Elijah the prophet. Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah says, you, you think this drought is trouble, Ahab? You think this, this little three-year lack of rain is trouble? You think I'm your problem? I'm not your problem. The Lord God Almighty is your problem. And Ahab's about to find that out. Look at verse 19. Elijah says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. All of Israel. The the entire nation. This is going to be a huge spectacle. Elijah wants everybody here. And not only all of the, the regular people of Israel, but also, he says, The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Those are two false gods. Who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel's the queen, Remember? At this point, she has her own special false god. And she has her own special prophets, false prophets, who help her to worship this false god. They're not in a great spot. Like, if if your queen is doing that, and you're supposed to be God's nation, then you're not where you're supposed to be. But Elijah wants those prophets down front and center. He wants them them at this showdown that's about to happen. They're going to play a major role in this. Verses 20 and 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So once again, the entire nation, you have all the prophets, we're all here in this one place. This epic showdown is about to happen. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him." He says, "Pick a side." Notice how notice how bold he is in this text. He's he's commanding things for the people. He's demanding things from the people. He says, "Pick a side. Pick God or pick Baal. Pick one of them, but don't just stand right in the middle." Like Jesus says in, in Revelation, right? I, I, I don't want you to be cold or hot. I want you to be, or I don't want you to be lukewarm. I'd rather be cold or hot. Don't just stick right in the middle. Pick a side. And Elijah says that here. He's in front of his entire nation. And he's so bold. Now, keep that in mind for when we get to the next chapter. Because we're going to see a very different Elijah. Next, we have verse 22. This is ratio. ratio. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Those are not good odds. On this side, you have one. On this side, you have 450. Not good odds. And it's about to get even worse. But I think that God likes it that way. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But what, but what Elijah says in the, in the coming verses is he, he lays out this challenge for the people of Israel, and especially for these, these false prophets. He says, okay, so I'm going to take a bull on my side and an altar, and I'm going to sacrifice that bull to my God. And then on this side, on on your side, false prophets, I want you to take a bull and also an altar. I want you to sacrifice that bull to your God. And then what's going to happen is we're both going to pray to our gods, me to the God of Israel, you to Baal. We're going to pray to our gods. And whichever one answers with fire from heaven and burns up our bull, burns up our sacrifice, then that side is the winner. So pretty simple. We have 450 on this side. We have one on this side. We're both going to pray to our gods. And whichever God answers is the winner. So what happens in, in the verses uh, that, that come after this one is that Elijah says, you can go first. He, he's a gentleman, right? He says, you can go first. You can have it. So these false gods or these false prophets are crying out to their false god. they're asking him to send fire from heaven and to burn up their bull, to burn up their sacrifice. But he doesn't answer. Surprise, surprise, right? And so Elijah starts mocking them. He says, "Oh, um, maybe he's on vacation and he can't he can't hear you." He says, "Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's on the toilet and he can't hear you." That's that's, that's what he says. He's mocking them. Maybe your false gods like, you know, maybe he just he can't he can't get cell reception, right? He, he can't you can't reach him right now. And so these false prophets get, get desperate. They're running around, they're jumping around, and they literally take knives and they cut themselves. They're trying to get attention from their false God. They look, they're saying, Look, your prophets are cutting themselves, trying to get your attention. Why don't you, why don't you pay attention to us? Won't you answer us? But verse twenty nine, the end of it. No one answered. No one paid attention. No answer. No attention. No fire. Just Crushing, bloody silence. But then, notice what happens on the other side of this. This is talking about Elijah, verse 32. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seeds. It's a really big trench. So he's, he digs this hole. Like, if we're going we're gonna to use this, pul- this pulpit as, as Elijah's altar, okay? So he's digging this, this big old hole all around his altar. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. So he's got it on top of the altar. Everything's ready to go for the sacrifice. And he said, fill four jars of water. What? And pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, if you're trying to set something on fire, you know what? Just about the, the literal worst thing you can possibly do to that thing is just to dump it in a pool. OK, like if, if you're trying to set a fire, then don't throw whatever you're trying to set on fire into the pool and then try to set it on fire because it doesn't work. Right. Water dows us fire. But that's what he says. He said, I want you to take this big old bucket. I want you to pour it over my sacrifice. But, but then he keeps going and he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So not only is it one prophet over here versus 450 prophets over here, it's also dry wood versus soaked wood. And it's also dry bull versus soaked bull. And it's also no trench of water versus full trench of water. God loves to be at a disadvantage just before he wins. Think of Joseph in prison right before he's he's elevated to second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. Think of Gideon with his his 300 army men facing thousands of Midianites right before he wins. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of Jesus on the cross, right, in the most vulnerable position possible. Think of your loneliness today. God loves to be at a disadvantage just before he wins. And that's what's about to happen. In verses 37 uh, and following, we have the revolution in the hearts of the people. Verse 37, answer me, Elijah's praying to God. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God, you are in charge of all of this. You rule. You're in charge of this, and I know that if you want to, you can answer with fire. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Everything. The bull, the wood, the water, the altar, the stones, all gone. And only God is left. Verse 39 the people see this, and if you see something like that, you have to respond, right? They fall on their faces and they say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Well, they got that right. He is God. He's not just a force, He's not just a memory. He's not just a tradition. He's not just an idea. He's not just a portrayal of our imaginations. He is the living, active, fire-sending, prayer-hearing, idolatry-destroying, sin-hating, personal God. And he shows that here. And he creates a revolution in the hearts of his people. Now... At the, end of the, at the end of this chapter, we have Elijah's request. Remember verse 1 of 1 18? God said, I will send rain upon the earth. So that's coming. God's promised it, and God doesn't break His promises. So that's, that's coming. But there were some things that had to happen first, right? The nation had to turn to God. Something had to change in their hearts. But there's also something else that has to happen. Because God is going to make this, this fire, or this, this rain, the answer to persistent prayer. That's what Elijah's about to see. Verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. We can only presume he was praying. And in the verses that follow this, there's there's, there's this really cool thing that happens. So Elijah sends his servant to look and he says, no rain, no rain, no rain, seven times. Or on the seventh time, he goes and he says, well, there's this, this little cloud that's coming. And Elijah says, all right, we're good. Verse 45, and in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. So Elijah has done it. Three years, and finally, there's rain. This chapter, this mission is a success. He's done his job. But he's not happy with it. That's what we're going to see. In the last part of, of chapter 18, and then in verse 19, beginning, we have Elijah running. Elijah running. So it's not just like he, he got up in the morning and went for a, a mile run. It's not just like somebody messed up in, in practice, and so we have to run laps. Type of run. It's not even like in basketball. Any of you all run suicides? Those are those are the worst. They're the worst. Okay, but it's not even those. I mean, it's it's closest to those. And you're about to see why. But it's not even those. Verse 45. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So he's in a chariot, right? He's in a chariot carried by horses. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So God supernaturally empowers Elijah, and he runs faster than uh, than Ahab's horses for 20 miles. That's, that's the distance from where they are to where they're going, Jezreel. 20 miles. He runs faster than horses. God empowers him to do that. Now keep that in mind. Keep in mind all that he's seeing in this chapter. He, he's seeing fire come down from heaven. He's seeing the entire nation turn to God. He's seeing God supernaturally empower him to run faster than horses for 20 miles. But the problem is he keeps running In chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel, King telling his queen, who's the one who's really in charge, Jezebel is, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So he had killed all those false prophets after they lost the showdown. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel gives him a 24 hour warning, right? He says in 24 hours, Elijah, either you're dead or I'm dead. That's what she says. She she puts a hit out on him. She puts a contract on his head. She puts a bounty on his head. So Elijah runs for his life because he knows that she means business. He's already killed countless prophets of God. He knows this is serious. So he runs. Verses 3 and 4. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Now notice he, he leaves a servant in Beersheba. And he goes another day's journey into the wilderness and sits down under a broom tree. And now he's all alone. He has successfully isolated himself. He successfully separated himself. He successfully run away from every other person on the planet. You know, sometimes when I feel lonely, when I feel sad, when I feel down, I just want to get away from everybody. Everybody. I want to separate myself from my family, from my friends, from my church family, from my life, from my responsibilities, even from my God. Sometimes I just want some alone time. And that's what Elijah's doing here, right? He's getting alone. And sometimes we really do need some alone time. Not from God, but from our family, from our friends, from our life. Sometimes we need some alone time. But sometimes, even when we feel like we need to be alone That's actually the very worst thing for us. And that's what Elijah is about to find out. Um, And and beginning in verse 4, resignation, resignation, verse 4. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He wrote God a suicide note. And he didn't even preface his prayer by saying, God, hear me, God, save me, God, deliver me from from the situation that I'm in. It, It feels hopeless, but I know I've seen all that you've done. I know you can deliver me from this. He doesn't even say that. He just goes straight to it. He says, God, it's enough. Just kill me. He's resigned himself to his fate. So in the verses that follow, an angel comes and gives him nourishment and some other really cool things happen. And he hides in this cave for 40 days. So he's hiding in a cave for 40 days alone. Now, For those of you who have ever been really lonely, really depressed, you know, hiding alone by yourself for 40 days is not the move when you're in that situation. But that's what Elijah does. He's in a cave by himself. And then in verse 10, he says something. This is in response to God's question in verse 9. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Seriously, what are you doing hiding in a cave by yourself? And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Oh, he says the very same thing in verse 14. He says, I'm the only one left, God. And he's given up even on himself. So he's really, there's no one left in his mind. Now, God reminds him. He gives a reminder to Elijah. So he says, basically, Elijah, did you forget what you just saw? Did you forget who who you're dealing with here? Like You're literally praying to me. You know that I'm here. You know that I'm present with you. And you just saw everything that I just did for you in the last chapter. And you're praying for me to kill you? You've given up on that? So then he gives him an extra reminder. Verses 11 and 12. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And and notice this. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now that's not normal wind. Normal wind does not tear a mountain in two. Elijah sees this. And then, after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And we might add that the Lord was in that. He says, "Elijah, I'm with you. I, the one who did all of that, I am with you. You're you're not alone. But also, in verse 18, not only am I with you, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every, every mouth that has not kissed him. You're not alone. You're not the only one left. Remember what you just said in the last chapter that I'm in charge of the hearts of all of these people. I'm in charge here and I'm leaving 7,000 with you. He says, Elijah, not only am I with you, they're with you. You're not alone at all. Well, then the last part of this chapter or the last part of the chapter that we're going to talk about, Elijah is given a responsibility from God. And this is the the text that Sam read. I'm so sorry, Sam. Um, (laughs) Didn't think about all those those long names when I assigned you that text. But so Elijah is told to go to all these long names and, and anoint some kings with some long names. Right. And so he's given responsibility. Not only is he supposed to anoint these kings, he's also supposed to kill some people that are really wicked people. He's also supposed to anoint Elisha. That's what happens next in the chapter. So he's given some responsibility. God gives him a job to do. He says, Elijah, get up. Quit thinking about your your poor, self-pitying, lonely self. Get up and get to work. And that's where we'll end tonight with responsibility. But as we end this morning, I just want to say thank you for being here. And I hope that we can all take inspiration from the story of Elijah and I hope that you'll make it back tonight, because that's when we're really going to take this story and apply it to our lives. And in studying for it, it's helped me a whole lot. Uh, I'm a single guy who moved here in the middle of COVID, so <laughs> I've dealt with loneliness to some extent. It's really helped me a lot, and I think it'll really help you, because loneliness is something that we all struggle with. So I hope you'll make it back tonight, and we can learn some more things from God's Word. This morning, if you've never given your life to God, can I just... Say that it is the best decision that you will ever make in your entire life. If you've never decided to follow Jesus, to give your all to him, then I don't think anybody needs to beg you to do that. Because if you really understand all that that means, all that it means for your life, all that it will change for you, you'll be running down these aisles. So if you want to do that this morning, won't you do it as we stand and as we sing?